Welcome to the Fully Restored Podcast. Christians often struggle to talk about areas of deep hurt like trauma or abuse, shame or betrayal. These are deep soul wounds. Friend, Christ came to not only heal us from our sin, but from our soul wounds as well. My name is Kristen Klaus and I'm a licensed professional counselor and author. And my guest and I are here to walk with you on your healing journey. We see you and hear you. Friend, if you hang with me, apply these truths to your life, you will be on your own path to a fully restored story. Grab your coffee, tea, or favorite drink, and let's get started. Hi friends, I am so grateful you're here with us today for the Fully Restored Podcast. Before we jump into my interview with today's guest, I wanted to let you know that today's topic of discussion is a difficult one and a topic that is best listened to away from children's ears. These interviews in this series are powerful, transparent, and real, but also give so much hope for someone who's been abused. Please be mindful of your own triggers and know we are discussing these things to bring them to the light of Jesus and to help women find their own healing and hope. Thanks, friends. And now to my interview. Hi, everyone. This is Kristen Klaus, and you're listening to the Fully Restored Podcast. Today, I am joined by my guest, Precious Swain Peaks, who has an amazing story of overcoming abuse, and trauma in her life. She's truly turned around her story to become her testimony. And I am so excited to have her on my show today. Welcome, Precious, to the Fully Restored Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's an honor to have you. So, Precious, just tell us briefly a little bit about yourself, the work you do in your family. Well, I'm the mother of seven. I am definitely married and I have over 30 grandchildren. I'm an accountant by trade and a life coach, we'll say kind of by hobby because I am an ordained minister and I only got the certification to kind of bring the human factor in with the spiritual overlay. And that's me in a nutshell. Wow. What a variety of things you do. And 30 grandchildren. Oh, my word. What are their ages? Oh, goodness. They rate the oldest is now 17. Uh-huh. The youngest is three months. Oh, yes. I have five and they're a year to five years. They're a joy. Yes. They're still at that playful age. Yeah. Well, Precious, let's just go ahead and dive in because there is so much um, to your story. So can you share your story with us? You know, start with your childhood, your growing up years, what it was like for you. I was born to an addicted mother and an incarcerated father. My father was in the federal um, penitentiary until I was 13, and my mother was addicted to heroin. In the beginning years, I lived with my grandparents until I was six. And with my grandparents, it was like being a princess, only child, youngest thing in the house. And it was a lot of education that I later, I never thought I would as a kid, but that I later used to survive. My grandparents were devout in the Jewish faith. And they taught me the Sabbath and different things like that. When my mother regained custody of me at six, it was like the Cinderella story, the true Cinderella story of going from having everything emotionally, mentally, and financially into a place of almost nothing. We didn't suffer from a financial aspect only because our grandparents 
had money and were able to help from that angle. But my mother, the addiction controlled her. Mm -hmm. So when she wasn't intoxicated, she was sick. Heroin is very hard on the body. And when she was intoxicated, we didn't matter. So one of the things a lot of people don't realize that happens to children of addicted parents is those children are not protected. If someone is not coherent, they're not paying attention to the things that are going on. So a lot of times they're physically abused, they're verbally abused, and they're sexually abused because there's no one to protect them from that. Oftentimes that addicted parent is definitely verbal or physically abusive just because they're not in a good mindset and they're emotionally off balance also. So by seven, eight years old, I knew how to stand on a stool and cook, wash dishes and care for my younger siblings because in essence, it was just us. By 15, I had left home. I felt that if I did not leave home, that I would not be here, that I would have died in the process. When I left home at 15, I had to find very creative means of survival because at that age, you're still unable to really get an after-school job without the signature of your mom. It's a lot of things you just can't do without a parent involved. But there were other things that you could do, and those were the things that I kind of got into. Balancing survival and still going to school was very difficult. So by 17, I was married. So, so Precious, I'm going to stop you there for a moment before we get into that and go back because I know you're going to jump into some other stuff. And wow, I just have to say there is so much that you went through just in your childhood. And I really appreciate your educating, your education points that you just gave us, you know, because we know that truth that when there are not healthy boundaries and we're not protected, that abuse comes in. It's very common, sad, but very common that the abuse comes in, as you mentioned. But seven to eight years old, here you are, you're cooking, you're taking care of siblings. So how many kids were there in your family? By the end, I'm the oldest of nine. At okay. that time, it was, I had two little brothers. By the time I was 10, it was four of us. So right up in that area of time, there were small kids because my first sibling is six years under six years under me so they were very small children after the fourth of us after my third sibling they began to place them at birth into facilities designed to deal with children who are born with withdrawals yeah as time and technology improved some things kind of changed, but not a whole lot because yeah. this is a while back that we're still in yeah. the 70s, 80s, and a lot of things just weren't available yet. So at that age, you learned, you knew you didn't want to be hungry, right? That's right. And you knew if the dishes weren't washed, you were going to get a spanking because this was now your mm-hmm. responsibility. And so because of that, I almost learned to be a mom while I was still a child. Well, I was just going to say you were actually, we have a term for that. It's called parentified. And that is when the oldest or the older ones 
because sometimes other ones move out and then it, it goes to the next oldest one in the family are expected to care for their siblings. And really it's out of their love and wanting to protect them in many cases. Like for you, you're talking about there were times your mom was either intoxicated or she was sick from after using and the after effects of that. And so here you're put in a position to take care of your younger siblings. So if your youngest one is six years younger than you, then that means when you were seven or eight years old and you learned to step up on a stool and do your own cooking, your youngest sibling was a year to two years younger than you. They were no, the, the next one after me is six years under me. So okay. by the time I began doing stuff, they were still, one hadn't been born yet. One was okay. still on formula. And then we progressed into the next one being born and learning to go through the diaper changing and the formula yeah. making. And I can be honest now, sometimes feeding them food that they weren't supposed to have because you don't really know they're not supposed to have it yet. Yeah. And then number three came along and it was just, I look back and I'm thankful because I learned things that now help me as an adult. But then it was very scary and it was very hard. Each drug has kind of a different effect. So with heroin, once they become addicted to the heroin, if they don't get the heroin or take the legal form, legal alternative, which at that time, the methadone was the only thing available. Now they have some other options, but back then that was the only thing. And they had to go to a clinic to get it. So they would be sick and they would go through these symptoms where they were like really, really sick, vomity, crying, chills, and really couldn't function. So either they were going to be really, really sick or they were going to be high, which those who are familiar with addictions know with heroin, it's almost like they go into a droop, into a drop mode. It's like one minute they're woke, yeah. the next minute they've dropped. And so in that situation, being a child, seeing this and not really understanding what's happening, it was life changing because as an adult, I don't any kind of, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't anything for fear of yeah. not only what I saw them go through, but never wanting to be like that to my children. Yeah. And you mentioned survival mode, you know, when you were 15 years old and when you left home and in that survival mode and, and it's really hard for some people to understand that there are children there are teenagers and there are actually adults too that live from a place of survival mode and it is it is very it is very different there's not peace you're always on edge there's always this hypervigilance it's always about how do i protect myself how do i find food how do i take care of myself without getting hurt or getting hurt the least amount possible or needing to protect somebody else so they don't get hurt and you take the brunt of it for them. And a lot of people don't understand that. Um, and that survival mode, it, it is really hard to get out of that. But we're not at that place yet in your story of getting out of that. So at 15, you left us with at 17 years old, you got married. What were those years like for you? They were a lie. That whole time period was a lie. 
I knew enough. I was educated in scripture enough to know the purpose of a wife. I did not marry someone that was sent by the most high, though. I got married in survival mode. So here was a young man. He thought that he wanted to be married, but more so it was his mother. His mother had no daughters. She had had a daughter that had passed still right after delivery. She wasn't stillborn, but she died right after delivery. So she never had any more children and she never had a daughter, which she always wanted. Here's this girl that her son likes who doesn't appear to have a mother. And now I have someone who I can treat like a daughter and shop, et cetera, with. And this is the perfect situation. It was more, the marriage was more beneficial for the mother than even for the son, which was my husband. For me, I was still in high school when I got into the relationship leading up to the marriage. For me, it was a place of rest. It was, okay, this situation, you don't have to hustle. You don't have to try to figure out how to eat. You don't have to try to figure out how to anything. You can focus and finish school. This is what this situation brings to you. So whether you like it or not, whether you like him or not, this situation is beneficial for you. And that is how I ended up in a marriage. I am forever thankful for the family because the family was very kind, taught me lots of things. But in all honesty, for me, it was never a relationship of love. And so that's that time period. It was almost like as if I had been walking through the desert for two years and now here's a place with some shade and some water. Oh, that's a great illustration. You know, and that's what it was. Yeah. So how long were you married for to him? I was married to him for three years. We Mm -hmm. were in the relationship for four because at Right after I turned 16 is when we started dating and immediately his mom brought me to live with them. And then eventually we got married. And right after I turned 19, because I started college at 17, because I graduated and then went straight into college the summer semester. At 19, I had my first son with him. But even in that, it was, it's going to sound very strange, but my first child was my first love. It was the first thing I ever, after leaving my grandparents, ever had a connect, a true connection with. Well, I mean, that is a, that's a pure love. You know, when a child is born, there's, it's different than anything you had experienced. I mean, you were taking care of your siblings, but they were your siblings. They were your, you know, but when it's your own child and just that love and adoration they had for you. So that So much that you went through. So then you said you were married for three years, together four years. When and what made it clear to you that you were in a dark place? What was that when you began to recognize you needed help? You needed, you needed to, to, I don't know if it was you needed to make changes. Like what, what helped you recognize you were in that dark place? As scary as this is going to sound. I knew the whole time I was in a dark place. The problem was I was so young and everything seemed so heavy. I didn't know how to look for the light. It was like I was in a tunnel and there was definitely two ends of the tunnel, but I couldn't 
gain the focus to really see that the, there was light at the end of the tunnel. And so what happened before I had my son, before I even got pregnant with my son, one day I was sitting on the bed and I said that I was tired. And it wasn't a sleepy tired. It was a tired of everything. The weight on my shoulders had been so heavy because now I've left my siblings. I know what the condition is. And now, even though I'm gone and going through my own struggles, et cetera, I'm worried about them and what they're going through and will it ever stop? And so one day while um, my mother-in-law and husband were gone, I said I was just tired and I didn't want to deal with any of it anymore. And I was just going to take a bottle of Tylenol and sleep forever. Yeah. Well, we're on this call, so that didn't work. Okay. <laughs> I like your humor in the midst of a, a difficult topic. Yeah. You know, so that didn't work. But yeah. what it showed me was that even though it seemed so dark, that mm. there was light and that I had to divert my attention to grasping hold, grabbing and climbing the rope that led to the light. So it is highly recommend that if you feel like you're so tired, you don't want to continue, it's too heavy, you just want to die, that you reach out and get some help. Yeah. I do not recommend anybody trying to kill yourself. And I could say this even though I've tried it because after it didn't work and I can now look back over life, I am so glad I didn't miss the things I would have missed had it worked. So the fact that it didn't work was my light moment. And that may seem like, what? You had to try to kill yourself to find light? Everybody goes through things differently. When all the pressure is on you and you carry all the weight anyway, sometimes you don't know how to shift that weight. So when I woke up in the ambulance with stinky puke and all I could smell was coffee, I realized that at that time, now I look at it different, but at that time I was like, oh my goodness, I can't even die right. So I really, there has to be something I'm supposed to be doing because I cannot even die right. And so I thought back into a place where I was a child again. I had to allow myself to go back to my normal place, my peaceful place, and remember what my grandmother had taught me. And when I sat down and thought about all the things that over time I had veered away from, I had veered away from daily prayer. I had veered away from daily study. I had veered away from talking to the most high, spending time praising and worshiping. And I had just moved away from observing the Sabbath. I had moved away from so much that she always taught me would give me grounding and give me peace. Till I had almost forgotten what it was. And this situation made me go back to, of course, not back to being four or five or anything like that, but back to a place where I know how to, I know how to fix it now. I can't fix it. I need to go into prayer. I need to go back into study. I need to get in tune with the father again, because I know he's here. I have just some kind of way let go of his hand and lost track of where he was. 
So for me, it was like when kids get lost in the mall, they've, they've let go of their mother's hand. The mother keeps walking. They were looking at through the window at the stuffed animal. And now they're looking for their mom. So I went into an area where mentally and emotionally, I'm looking for my creator. I'm looking for the most high. I'm looking for the peace that was promised to me. And it was difficult because I had married someone that was not necessarily an unbeliever, but had a different belief structure. So they didn't understand that you needed to study because how will you know if you don't? They thought you go to church on Sunday, whatever they say is what it is. And then you just do whatever you do all week until the next Sunday. They couldn't understand why I needed quiet time, why I needed to read. And so that was part of what led to the divorce for that particular marriage. I just couldn't, I couldn't do what I needed to do to get the peace that I needed. And so without there being a peaceful place, all I really knew outside of needing that peaceful place was fight or flight. I was either going to get away or if I was blocked in, I was going to fight because that's all you really know when the majority of your life has been survival. I really appreciate you talking about all of that. You know, on on the one side, when you're 17, how old were you when you attempted your life? I was 17. You're 17. You know, that dark place. and And I was thinking as you were talking of how in the past I've gone in to high schools and middle schools and have worked with kids doing youth suicide prevention and some different things and overcoming roadblocks, different things I've done with them. One of the things I encourage teenagers is to recognize when they need to get adult help because often they feel that they can handle it or they can handle what's going on with their friends. But when you're 17 and you're in survival mode, you don't know who to trust because you have you struggle to trust people because you've been hurt, because you've been abused. And, and so, well, I don't know if I can trust you. And so I just, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about, you know, maybe somebody here doesn't have your story, but maybe they know of a teenager or a young adult who's struggling and they've been through a lot in their life. They've been through abuse. They've been through trauma. They've had parents who have had addiction. If just one listener says, I need to reach out to that person and I need to make it a point to consistently reach out to them, not just once. And when they tell me no, say, okay, I did my part, you know, but consistently loving on them with the love of God, because that can make all the difference in the world that when somebody is in a dark place, they turn to you and ask for help. So I was just thinking of that as you were talking and just so much there, precious, so much went through and so much on that journey and having that outlook of, I look back and I think, wow, you know, I would have missed all of this and recognizing I got to dig into the word. I got to, I got to read. I got to study. I got to do these things. I can't just go to church and listen to them and then go do whatever I want to do the rest of the week. You know, I've got to start living this walk. Was that where your fully restored story took place or was that down the road? Tell us about your fully restored story. My fully restored story happened 
way down the road from there. That was, I guess we would say when a hurricane is coming, you get that first little sprinkles of rain before it starts coming in bands. That was my first sprinkle of rain. But that place is what helped me get to my final huge burst of restoral. But it took a while. I will be honest, it took a while. Yeah. Because I have no shame in saying I was so damaged until I was ugly from a spiritual and an emotional angle. I was ugly. I no longer knew how to love, how to care. When I started going to counseling, they said I had reactive attachment disorder. And what a reactive attachment disorder simply is, is you don't attach. Yeah. And they say it's common in children who didn't have anything to attach to in the beginning of their lifespan. Well, because my mother was an addict, I was born premature. And now they have cuddlers. But 50 years ago, they didn't have cuddlers. Yeah. 50 years ago, they didn't know what was going on with us. We're shaking, we're hollering. They don't yeah. know. They didn't understand any of the process. So they swallowed you and put you under the infrared light. And yeah. if you lived, Yahoo, if you didn't, oh, well, you know. And I don't say that to be negative. I'm just being very honest that technology has really changed that. And it's easier for children who are born in a state of withdrawal to now be cared for. But back then, they did not know how to care for us. It was very weird. So when you're born premature, of course, you have all these issues and they're going to put you under the infrared light anyway, and they're going to put you to to feed you and all of this. So you really can't be held. Even if someone loves you and is there talking to you every day, 90% of the time, they can't hold you. They could touch your hand, they could touch your feet, they can't hold you. But in the situation that I was in, not only was I premature, but now because my mother had drugs in her system at my time of birth, I'm going through a form of withdrawal. Well, she's not there because she goes from having me to jail. So I'm, for the most part, on my own for four months, they kept me, before giving me to my grandparents. I was in the hospital for four months. So then when you first get home, there's no real designated set of time. Each child is a little different of how long they go through the screams and the shakes and the different things that they go through. Back then, they don't know what to do. They're telling them to swaddle you. So everybody's swaddled. So they're wrapped in these blankets. They can't move. But this is it might help for the shakes, but this isn't helping you bond with people. That yeah. This isn't helping. And so part of my problem was because there had been no attachment, they said I didn't know how to attach. But the other thing was once I attached to my grandparents, they were stripped away from me. Yeah. So <laughs> the whole attachment thing had kind of blown out of the window until later in the story. But then I went through a form of through abuse. I had been verbally abused. My mom and my stepfather were hitters. If my mom really wanted to get a point across, she'd sit me in the garage for hours with the lights off. And when she would have her get-togethers, the person who supplied the party favors would always wait till everybody was at their high point to come and then touch. So I was a very broken person filled with hate, mm. just filled with hate. Yeah. So 
my first thought was never to trust. There was, there was no trust there. So even after having tried to kill myself, being married, being in a family environment, even after having my first son, now I had my first son and I loved him unconditionally, but this is one more thing I now have to protect. So now I'm in an extra protective mode. So I went through these scenarios. I have seven adult children now. My children went through a very uh, form of abuse. I, I didn't beat them and I didn't yell and scream at them, but I overprotected them, which a lot of people wouldn't consider abuse, but it doesn't give them the ability to really learn good social skills, explore life or anything like that. There was no daycare. There were no babysitters. And when they became school age, they still went from school right back home. My daughters did not date. They went to prom and ran for prom and all that, but they could not date until they were 18. I was just really, really overprotective. A few years after my divorce, I got remarried. Again, not because this husband had been sent by the father, but again, for partnership for someone to make money with and to be very, very transparent, there was a sexual addiction there. From having been touched from seven, eight to 15, then in survival mode, never know what may be the circumstance or the exchange that has to be made to eat or live or have clothes or whatever, and then getting married now, quite frankly, there's a physical addiction to sexual touch. So the second marriage was because even though I had some things that weren't exactly right, the one thing I knew for sure is that I was not supposed to willingly have sex with anyone other than my husband. So I get married. I'm in a marriage for 20 years that just doesn't seem to work. I'm praying and crying out to the father to fix it. He's not fixing it because it's not broken. I'm just not supposed to be there. It was still an issue with two different belief systems. I thought families should pray together. My ex-husband thought they should not. Just a lot of different things that went on in addition to physical abuse and at some points financial abuse. There were times that I was not exactly the victim because I carried so much pain and realized that if it didn't go his way, he was going to hit. I would take the first move and go ahead and hit first or hit with something. You know, it just it just wasn't a good mix. So perpetually, I was still in this you were in the cycle. Dark. You were yeah. in a cycle of you were raised in it. That's what you knew. And the relationships you were in continued that cycle. So as we're getting to the end of our time on our show, just briefly tell us how did all that change? Because now your life is so different. So where did that change take place where you got out of that cycle and you're at a fully restored place? I began to regularly go to church, which led to me from continuously being told 
you're supposed to be an evangelist. No, not me. You don't know who you're talking to and what I've been through. Not me. But I began theology school and the ex-husband was like, you don't have time to preach. We have to find money and this, this and that. And one day he came home with a necklace that the pendant on it was the head of a wolf. And he said he had the wolf spirit. And I went into prayer and I asked the father that anything that was not of him to remove it, even if it was going to hurt me in the emotionally in the process. I just needed it to be removed. And two days later, the task force raided our home and took my ex-husband to jail. During that process, I filed for divorce. I finished theology school. I decided that I needed to fix me. And the only way I was going to be able to fix me is if I opened myself up to allow the father back in. It was definitely a process. It was a five-year process of being by myself with my children, reading, studying, praying, and looking in the mirror at the real me, acknowledging the ugliness, acknowledging the pain, and working to heal from it. So each thing, each thing that I saw, I made a list of it. What was wrong with it? What did I need to correct about it? Intellect was never an issue. I went to college four times, have three degrees. It was never an intellect thing. It was always a mental and an emotional thing. The first thing that I had to do was forgive myself. The second thing I had to do was forgive my mother. The third thing I had to do was forgive my father. And people may be saying, but you were the one abused. Why did you have to forgive yourself? I had to forgive myself because I always thought that it was my own fault that I went through the things that I went through. I had to forgive myself because I always felt like I was unworthy of the love of the father who only wanted to love me and bring me through. I had to forgive myself because I blamed myself and considered myself a hideous creature because that could be the only reason that no one loved me. But I had to love me through it all, and I did. So I had to forgive myself. I had to forgive my mother for being who she was and understand that I did not really know her. I only knew the addiction. And I had to forgive my father because I always felt like had he not been incarcerated, I would not have gone through any of it. You know, Precious, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking forgiving ourselves, you know, in for those that listen to me on a regular basis, they know that I have a book and it's about healing for our soul gardens, restoration, wholeness after sexual abuse. But women that experience all type of abuse, read that book. And it's a workbook, really. I have a leader's guide for people to lead groups in their church. And, you know, one of the things I'm always talking about is we need to forgive ourselves. For some, we have to forgive God because we have a concept that God allowed it to happen. And then third, we forgive those who abused us because it's very common to take ownership of something, of the abuse that happened to us. So I I appreciate you bringing those. I really feel like those are the three tips about needing to forgive ourselves. You had to forgive your mom. You had to forgive your dad. And I so appreciate just all of all of that, of you just sharing of the struggles. And, you know, it didn't it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen when you were 17, when you started studying again and and going back to church and stuff. There's been a 
a continual journey and there's been cycles of abuse and but then you get to a place where it's like, okay, I've got to heal me. And you, that's a journey you've started on. And we could probably talk for hours about all of this. But unfortunately, we are out of time. So how can people connect with you online and find your resources? The easiest way, I would say, is to go to www.authorpreciouswain.com. From there, there are links to my social media. There are email addresses to reach me, and there's links that lead to the website for the ministry. So that would be the easiest way to get in contact with me. And there's things that you've written and stuff that are all there. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, I have just really appreciated your transparency, Precious. I mean, I really, truly do. And I believe that your story is ministering to many people right now who are listening to us. So thank you, Precious, for being on my show today. Oh, you are so very welcome. Our show notes, friends, and all the links shared with us today can be found at my website, fullyrestored.love or kristenklaus.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can stay up to date on all of our shows. And I would really appreciate it if you could leave a rating or even a comment as well on whatever platform you're listening to us on. People look at those ratings and those comments when they're looking for a new show to listen to. I would love to stay connected with you and you can find me on Instagram and my Facebook page. Both of those are at author Kristen Klaus. I pray that this episode of the Fully Restored podcast minister to you. I pray that for that person that says, my life was like precious, that you see the hope, how precious has come out of this and and all that God has done in her life. And that you begin to walk that your own journey of learning to forgive, learning to press into God, learning to dig into his word, reading the Bible, going to church, doing those things so that you grow in your relationship with God and finding those people who can help you. And remember friends, nothing or no one is beyond restoration with our Jesus.